0: Well, have you ever been in a situation you didn't know what you were doing, or at least you didn't know at least part of what you were doing, Uh, you felt like you were up against a little more than you've been prepared to handle? If I was an extroverted preacher, I'd have you raise your hand or tell your neighbor, but don't worry, I'm not. And I feel like I have those situations on a weekly basis, if not more often than that, where I don't really know exactly what I'm doing. And I... I don't think I'm alone. I think we've all faced those times where we'd like to know the answer, the solution. We'd like to have greater confidence than we do, but we really don't. And every one of us approaches these situations differently, but I think there's two pretty broad categories that were tempted or pulled these two different directions. One is fake it till you make it. And these people act like they have what it takes, even though inside they really don't and they know that they really don't have what it takes, but they'll never let you know that. They wanna fake it till they make it, then they'll act like they're good. Others don't fake it till they make it, but they pout about it till they're out of it. And uh, this is often uh, in the form of internal self-pity, and it has this type of uh, a monologue, even though it's not spoken, it's I'm worthless, there's nothing I can do, this situation is pointless, I'll never make it through, And then they just keep that monologue going until the situation is passed. And like I said, each of us has tendencies towards one of these two responses. And honestly, as I look at my own life, if you're like me, it just depends on the day, my mood, and I can be both. Uh, The primary problem with these two is that they have a focus on the self. So we are persuaded by what we are able to do, We're persuaded by what we're not able to do. So it only focuses on the self, which is part of the truth. Part of the gospel is our nature and who we are, but that's not the whole truth. It's not the whole gospel. So there's a third option to situations, and I would say to life. There's a third option, and it's not being persuaded of what you're able to do or what you're not able to do, but being persuaded of someone or something other than yourself. So that third option is other, and that is a broad category. But obviously, it includes being persuaded about God. Persuaded about Him, that He cares for you, He loves you, He's at work in your life, and He's inviting you and us into what He's doing, which is primarily a relationship with Him. When you're persuaded about someone else, that means you trust them. Whenever you have trust, you have relationship. And our focus, whether it's on ourself, what we're able to do, what we're not able to do, or on what someone else is able to do, our focus both reveals and it builds our persuasion. The more you choose it, whether it's a focus on self, a focus on God, the more persuaded that you become. And and it's important because persuaded people are the ones who persuade people. They're the ones who live persuasively because they are first themselves persuaded. And you can be persuaded and be wrong, but whether you're right or wrong, if you're a persuaded person, you still have the power to persuade others. So how can we tell who we should follow? Or how can you say that someone should follow you? How can you be persuaded of that? Well, you have to look at what they're persuaded of. And in our passage today, we're going to see three sources of Christian persuasion. So instead of the broad category of other, God has narrowed it down to what does it mean, what does it look like for Christian persuasion, because we are called as believers to persuade others. That's part of what it means to make disciples. And so we can see how to be rightly persuaded from God's word. And that's important because persuaded people persuade people. So if you're able, I invite you to stand as I read the passage, because one of the first ways that we'll see from this passage is a a fear of God. That's a source of Christian persuasion. So I invite you to stand as I read the passage now. Uh, This is a way that we can just honor God and His Word and pay attention. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 through 15. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You can be seated. So as I mentioned uh, in this passage, we see three sources of Christian persuasion. And the first one is the fear of the Lord. You see it in verses 10 and 11. And persuaded people persuade people because they believe something is They believe something so strongly to be true and false, right and wrong. And in a culture, the culture that we live in today, that's becoming increasingly apathetic, they don't care about truth or morality, or they're not convinced that it exists, we shouldn't be surprised there's a dearth of leadership. There's a dearth of positive persuasion. But God's words bring much-needed clarity whereby we can be persuaded. So the first source of us being persuaded by God is to fear Him. Verse 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what, he's been done, for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the judgment of God is a large part of what it means to fear Him. And that's why Paul writes in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And so he's connecting the fear of the Lord to the judgment that Christ will bring. And our action as a result of that is we persuade others because we are so persuaded that we're going to give an account. And they're going to give an account. And because Christ has shown us the way into righteousness because he's provided righteousness for us and offered it to them, we persuade others. We are persuaded of this and therefore we persuade others. And the fear of the Lord is the source of our persuasion. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is navigating life well. It's navigating life successfully. And so in order to navigate life well, we must fear God. That's the beginning. And we must fear God. And what it means to fear God is that we're aware of the fact that not only is He so much greater than us, but we don't really deserve anything good from Him. In fact, going back to the judgment, because the fear of the Lord is tied to judgment we only deserve hell death and the grave that's what we deserve and of course god has been kind to us and we can be confident in that kindness but to fear god is to recognize that he is awesome and because he is this this awesome we can't take him lightly there's an awesome reverence even i would say a certain feeling uncomfortable and unsafe but you're still safe you're actually safer under God's mighty hand than apart from it. But to fear God is to recognize that apart from his graciousness, apart from his grace shown us in Christ, we're we're not safe. And he is mighty. So you might be wondering, well, can't we talk to him as a friend? That's what Jesus told his followers. And I would say, absolutely. I love doing that. And God has used many men in my life who are awesome at that to encourage me and grow me in that. But if we just relate to God on certain aspects of his character and not others, it'd be like saying to Roger or saying to Andy, I'd love to be your friend. Let me know when you're having a good day. Let me know when you're in a good mood, when you need some help, or, and I can feel good about helping you. But th- that's not the way that good friendships work. And that's not the way that we're to approach God. Pick and choose, our favorite parts of his character. This is part of God's character. He's holy, and there's, there's no one else like him. We are to fear him. He's commanded us that, and it's, he's actually commanded it to us for our good. So we're, God is not trying, though, to persuade us by scaring us into a decision, and we are not called to persuade others by scaring them into a decision all we're doing is bringing up matters of greatest importance. We're presenting truth. And if you're saved, the Bible's clear teaching is you are responsible to God for what He has entrusted to you. You're called to be faithful with what God's given you. Look at Ezekiel. I'll take you to the Old Testament to show you this in addition to the New. Ezekiel three seventeen through 19 God's addressing Ezekiel as son of man. And God says, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth you shall give them, Israel, warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And Ezekiel, if you don't give him any warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. That was your role, to give the warning, not to save them, but to give the warning. But if you give, if you warn the wicked, and he doesn't turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, He'll die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Now, don't misapply this and use this as a case to earn your salvation. That's not what God is saying. We cannot and do not earn our salvation. We don't earn our soul's deliverance. But we must take responsibility. We deliver our souls from guilt in our responsibility when we are faithful in our responsibility to tell others that, matters of greatest importance, the gospel. And and this passage in Ezekiel reminds me of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, just after what we read in verse 20, and it defines our role. We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so Christ says, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And so, for example, of uh, what it means to fear God, his judgment, And to persuade others, I thought about my life. And uh, I always, I I had great grandpas growing up. And uh, one of my grandpas, I knew he went to church every Sunday. But I didn't ever recall hearing his story, his testimony. And I began to wonder, like, well, I don't know how much longer grandpa's going to be alive. And just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And so I was like... I just want to get lunch with Grandpa and hear his story. I wasn't trying to be judgmental. I was caring about him. I was loving him the best way I knew how. Um, the way that God's Word shows us how to love people, to offer them Christ, and to make sure that they have relationship with Christ. And I asked him the question, and I got to hear his story. And I was encouraged. And it persuaded me to live persuaded. And persuasion isn't just evangelism. It's actually also discipleship. It's our growth in Christ, because Paul didn't write this to a bunch of unbelievers. He wrote this to a church. So he says, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Live right with God. And we all need that constant reminder that what matters most in the end matters most now. Walk with Jesus. So our relationship to God is going to show up in our relationship with people And that's why Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What we know about God impacts how we relate to and pursue people. That's the first source of Christian persuasion, the fear of the Lord. The second source in this passage is clear living before God and others. When you live clearly before God and clearly before others, that is a source of being persuaded and a source of how to persuade others. Our lives make it clear that we're not persuasive or persuaded because of anything that we think, anything that we've done. We boast of Christ, and actually we boast of Christ in each other. That's what we'll see in this next passage. Look at verse 11, the second half. Paul writes, But what we are is known to God. It's like he's saying, we've been thinking about His judgment, how it relates to us, and we know where we stand. We know why we stand there. We are guilty sinners but we're forgiven because of Christ. What we are is known to God. I hope it's also known to your conscience. I hope you know that's who we are. But he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. We don't have anything to boast about as guilty sinners forgiven by Christ. But we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. And so, there was this dynamic going on in the Corinthian church where Paul had planted this church, he had helped raise them up, and then he'd left to go plant other churches and be obedient to God's call on his life, and then in this church, they began believing and following what, well, a a self-labeled super-apostles, this group, and these super-apostles appeared much more impressive than Paul did, but... But they were not teaching the truth. They weren't leading them rightly. In fact, they were undercutting Paul's influence. And so Paul's saying, if you want to be impressed by people with outward appearance, go ahead. But you should boast about us because of our heart, and not the way that we look and not the way that we talk. And then he says, if we're beside ourselves, if you think we're crazy, it's for God. But if you listen to what we're saying and you think we're in our right mind... It's because it's for you. We're trying to serve you. And so to illustrate clear living before God and others, I want to show you an example of what it's not. In 2006, the front page of Time magazine read, Does God Want You to Be Rich? And it was an article about prosperity preachers that then and even now are highly influential, highly persuasive in our culture, and even in the subculture of Christianity. But, they will not, they refuse to live clearly before others. Now, I can't speak for their relationship to God beyond what their actions reveal and what Scripture reveals, but when, when interviewers, reporters interview them about their wealth because they have mansions, private jets, and much, much more, they refuse to answer reporters' question. They refuse transparency. And in a time poll, this this is of Christians surveyed. So they just polled self-professing believers. This shows uh, the the prosperity preacher's persuasiveness. Time poll, surveyed Christians, and 17% said that they considered themselves to be part of such a movement, while 61% believed the basic message of the prosperity gospel that God wants people to be prosperous. Financially, is what they teach. And 31% of Christians, they polled, believe that if you agreed to give your money to God, God will bless you with more money. And that's totally unbiblical. It's not true. God never promised that. So like the super apostles in 2 Corinthians, they appear impressive, and they are smooth talkers. They're much better communicators than me. But thousands of people are being led astray in our country. And I believe God wants to use people like me, people like you, His people. He wants to use us to bring them back to the truth. We are responsible with what He has entrusted to us. So how can we be persuasive? Know the fear of the Lord and live clearly in your relationship to God and others. Clear living is a way that we are persuaded. That's why in small groups we, we live together, we share our lives together, because it's persuasive to see other people living their life openly and honestly before God and men. And then we come to a place of peace, like Paul, where we can say, look, no matter what they think of me, I've communicated the truth in love. If they think I'm crazy, it's because of my faithfulness to God. If if they think I'm sane and it makes sense, it's because I'm trying to serve them, not impress them. I'm not leading them because I'm any better. I'm leading them out of faithfulness to what God's called me to do, to be His ambassador. Now it's time for our third source of Christian persuasion, and that is the controlling love of Christ, which we find in, verse, in the first part of verse 14. Christ's love controls us. That's a great picture of Christian persuasion. And to illustrate that, I want to show you a picture of uh, my puppy dog, Cora. She will follow me and you, she'll follow anyone around everywhere. And even this week, even when I had food in her sight, like just up on a desk that she could reach and eat my food, if I walk out of the room, she'll walk with me because her love for me controls her. But her love for food also controls her because if I get a treat and I start walking around, she'll be following me, but she'll be following the treat really. And she'll do what I say for the treat. It's her love that controls her. And it is Christ's love that controls us. Our love for him, his love for us, controls us. That is to be a source of persuasion for us. When we see it in other people, and then when we see it ourselves in Christ for us, we're to be persuaded. And when we are persuaded, other people are persuaded as well. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he, Jesus, the one who died for all, he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, were called to live for him. And this is the gospel, that all deserve death, but the one died in the place of all. And Jesus was that one. And he gives life to anyone who would trust him as Savior and Lord. And so anyone who trusts him as Savior and Lord They live their whole life for Him, not just Sunday mornings, but their whole life. And it's not a life of perfection, it's a life of direction. We have a clear direction in which we're headed, namely the direction the Lord Jesus is leading us. So if you're not committed to that, I want to challenge you and invite you to commit your life to the Lord. Tell Him that you believe and tell Him that you're grateful for what He's done for you. And then commit your life to following Him. That's the love of Christ. And as his people, Christ's love controls us. It's compelling, it's persuasive, and as we're controlled by it, it makes us persuasive. As we're controlled by it, that shows that we are persuaded. You can't be controlled by something that you're not persuaded of. So I'm willing to venture that a number of people who are going through our experience in God's study have wrestled with parts of the study because... Part of it is difficult. It's, it's challenging. And it can present questions in your own mind like, well, what if I don't hear from God? He says that if you have trouble hearing from God, you're in trouble at the heart of your Christian experience. Or how can I know when it is God speaking to me? And I just want to say this. It's good to wrestle with that. It's the right question to ask. And I also want to say this. Like we talked about last week, God loves you. And if all you ever heard from God was I love you, you wouldn't need to hear anything else. Because think about those three words and who they represent, namely us, that's, that's the you part, and our character, our need. I, think about God and who He is, how we're called to fear Him, how high and mighty God is. He is not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. And think about how He demonstrated, how He brought the I and the you together in His love. Jesus on the cross, if all you ever heard from God was, I love you, not only would that be enough for you, but that would be enough to move you to respond in ways that you never would have dreamed or imagined for yourself. And as I believe, as you're persuaded that God loves you, you'll begin to discern his voice more clearly. I don't hear his voice all the time, but I do know that when I hear his voice, I know how to distinguish it from the devil's voice and from other voices, is because at the thrust of God's voice is the gospel. It's, I love you, and I've demonstrated my love for you in Christ. So, I just want to spend some time encouraging you as a church, because as I thought about the source of Christian persuasion that Paul says is, uh, that Christ's love controls us. I've seen Christ's love control you. And I've seen that, namely, in doing things that you've never done before. It, you know that it's Christ controlling you when it's not something that you've done before or that you've chosen to do, when it's uncomfortable, when it's inconvenient. Uh, I've seen and heard stories about you sharing your faith with your coworkers, how people who've never attended. Or participated in small groups before are participating. People are serving in the front who've never served in the front before and would rather not serve in the front. Or you'd rather serve in the front but you've chosen to serve in the background by cleaning, making coffee, leading our kids in worship, cutting the grass. I've seen you be courageous in meeting new people, even going door-to-door to meet people. And Many of you had never done that before and never wanted to do it before, but you actually enjoyed it. I've seen you be reflective about what's going on inside of you, what God has been, how he's been changing you, what he's been speaking to you about, wrestling with questions. And I've seen you stick around, even though this is a much different church than it was six months ago. And I've seen you begin to embrace it. I believe... And I could be wrong, but I believe that it's Christ's love that's controlling you. There's been multiple times already, probably three that I can bring to mind, where you have supported each other financially without the person in need asking for financial support. You've heard of a need, and you've served by giving money, by giving time, and that is the power of Christ controlling you, and it's persuasive. So I just want to say, I'm proud to be your pastor because it's encouraging to see God moving through His people. And I also want to say, keep it up. Because, and you can't keep it up unless you keep receiving the love of Christ. Keep being persuaded, and you will be a persuasive people. Because that's God's plan for His church, to use you, to use us, every single last one of us. And He will use us as we pursue Him in relationship. Don't pursue being used by God, just pursue God. It'll be enough. Pursue being persuaded, and you will be a persuasive person. So our role is be faithful. Since we know the fear of the Lord, we live openly and honestly, and the love of Christ is what controls us as we persuade men. So Blackaby has phrased it in this way, uh, Unit 4, Love and God's Invitation. He says, God works through those He loves to carry out His kingdom purposes in the world. His love controls us. That's the way 2 Corinthians phrases it. Obedience is an outward expression of your love for God. Obedience is preceded by receiving and believing the love that God has for you. So that's that's what it means to be persuaded. And persuaded people persuade people. We're invited by God to be persuaded by Him and for him to be the one persuading others through us. So let's pray.